out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American punk band, The Reducers, who I spoke to, or one of the members, very recently. It was Hugh Birdsall to talk about life, love and poetry and all the other groovy stuff, to also find out what he's done in music before and after and any other creative endeavours. Anyway, this is the interview, so you're going to find out everything and more about such a band. Um, yes, their 80s work started um, in the early decade and then went into the mid-90s, but um, on Rayvon Records. There isn't a huge amount of stuff about them, but anyway, take notes, you will learn lots. So after several minutes of interest and but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Yes, who take it away. Tell us, tell us what that moment was. Oh, yeah, many. Um, well, the, the first uh, rock show I ever saw was Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac at the, uh, at the Boston Tea Party in Boston. Um, and that just changed my life pretty much so so peter green was my number one guitar player for a long time uh until chris spedding came along and then um he was my guy um but there's so many it's it's really hard to to say individually i mean that's that's my story but um peter the other guitar player and i we we kind of came up together uh we probably started playing when we were about 12 or so and uh, we were totally into the British blues scene. Um, and, you know, Jeff Beck, a lot of British rock in general. We had a we had a duo where we played all Kinks, Who, uh, Beatles and Stones covers. Um, that was early on, probably in the early 70s. Yes, that's amazing. Uh, but then... So- we uh, we were fans of all these very uh, competent players, but we knew we could never match them. And then uh, Peter found a Ducks Deluxe record in a cutout bin. Uh, it was their first record. And we, we listened to that and we said, hey, we could do something like this. Um, so that really inspired us. And then uh, both of us went to, to London in 77 and saw the British punk rock explosion close up we we were in london for about 10 days and saw about 15 shows while we were there um but we we touched on all a lot of the big names at the time um it, including the sex pistols we saw them at, at brunel university at a, a secret gig um and uh i thought i was gonna die but we had a blast actually excellent uh, so, oh, so we got we got really so we were a blues oriented band who got inspired by british punk rock and then we were outsiders everywhere we went because we were too bluesy for the punk rock clubs and too punk for the blues clubs um so we kind of had to find our own way excellent that's so good did you i mean did your parents did they have any kind of musical influence on you at all during that period because it sounds like you were quite hip to the trip in the 60s um well, my dad took us to the Newport Folk Festival in 1965. So I've got 10 years on you. I was I was born in 1954. Right. And, yes. uh, you know, we saw Mississippi John Hurt and Peter, Paul and Mary and the Everly Brothers. Um, 
So that had certainly had a big impact on me. And, and I've kind of come full circle because I'm in more of a, 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 a folky band right now um, called Dog Bite. And yes. uh, it's, a, it's a very different from what the reducers were doing. <laughs> that um, sounds and amazing. We still cover some things that the reducers covered. So, because um, the reducers started off as a cover band, and then we yes. figured out if we wanted to be really punk, we had to write our own stuff. Um, so we were covering like the Clash and the Sex Pistols and the Ramones and Elvis Costello and stuff like that. Um, Graham Parker, those kinds of guys. Blimey, that is that is very cool and great. And then about a year in, we started writing our own stuff. And we didn't actually record something until 84, I don't think. Yes, 84. I know. A, gl a glorious period. The, that sort of 83 to 87 was my favorite period. But just going uh -huh. back slightly, you would have yeah. kind of, you would have really got a sense of that kind of 60s period. If you'd seen, you know, the the Peter Green Fleetwood Mac, you know, moment with John McVie and Mick Fleetwood. And uh, was Christine McVie? No, she wasn't in the band. Oh. We did see that band as well later on, um, but this was Jeremy Spencer, Peter Green, uh, Danny Kerwan, uh, John McVie, and and Mick Fleetwood, and they were just astoundingly great. Yes, uh, I have some bootlegs of that show, and I just it's like whoa, amazing. Yes, the power of Peter Green is um, something yeah. else, isn't it? So when you got to sort of that kind of ripe old age of sixteen. You know, the the 60s had sort of was coming to an end with a bit of a kind of a bit of a moment where things didn't look so great because obviously 67 there was the summer of love. Things were going great. And then bizarrely, it all goes rather down, slightly downhill, doesn't it? You know, with with Brian Jones dying, then you had the the, the Manson kind of moment. And then you also uh -huh. had the death of, you know, Joplin, Hendrix and Morrison right. as well and, and Altamont. Yeah. So how did you feel when you hit 16 in 1970 and you thought, oh, blimey, this is a bit this, you know, the Beatles break up as well? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think we were all sad about that. But um, musically, I'm trying to remember, I, I think um, James Taylor comes to mind because he, he had just started being popular. Um, I remember seeing him at some college, at, at a college auditorium, just all by himself. Um, and so I wanted to learn how to play like him. And I, I was kind of into... Um, I don't know, things like Leo Kotke and John Fahey. So I was more of an acoustic player at the time. Yes. I didn't pick up an electric guitar until I was maybe 17 or 18. Um, so had you, also, had you also embraced the world that, you know, obviously the cliche would be Dylan, but were, were you also into people like Donovan as well? And then eventually... Sure, Dylan and Donovan. Um, although I, I found... Um, Some of the some of the more electric Donovan stuff I didn't I didn't go for that much. Although I know Jeff Beck played on one, and I was a big Jeff Beck fan. So, um, yeah, I was I was kind of lukewarm towards him. I, I liked all of his folky stuff. Yes, catch um, the, catch the wind and um, yeah, uh, give, um, give colors, um, yeah. Yes, no, I I I much prefer the kind of sensitive cosmic kind of. Um, stuff than someone trying to be electric when frankly it doesn't suit them does it really but as uh, the 70s progressed did you leave school at 16 or did you stay on to college and university oh yeah i went i went to to college um 
I got out in 75, I guess. And that's when um, we, we started our, uh, our duo. And then in 77, I went to, to England um, with my dad. And and I saw some some the punk rock thing was just kind of starting up, at least our awareness of it was just starting up. And um, and I saw a few things that, that I enjoyed. And then I convinced my friend Peter to go back with me in October. Um, no, it would have been it would have been right before Christmas um, because we came home on Christmas Day. <laughs> um, we went to all, you know, we went to the Marquee Club and the Roundhouse and Hammersmith Odeon and um, I can't remember what other clubs. But um, did you go to the Roxy? Not the Roxy, no. Right, I just wanted to. But do uh, we just had kind of a whirlwind uh, experience. We saw Chris Spedding at the Marquee, and um, he just knocked us out. Yes, and, dear uh, old Chris. Yeah, no, he was. Yeah, we're, we're like Chris Spedding fanatics. Um, and so we covered a lot of his songs in our early days too. And, and in fact, kept covering them, uh, all the way through. Yeah. Um, I did. I did an interview with Chris a few years ago, which was I'm quite, kidding. Yeah. He, he was kind yeah, of boggling. Cause the amount of, I said the amount of material that he's recorded and session work. Cause I know one of the songs, yeah. I mean, it was kind of the, the albums like, um, Harry Nilsson, I can't live. If living is without yes. you, he he oh, he played on that. And, yeah, yeah. And I said, you know, when you recorded this kind of incredible classic, did you think at the time this was amazing? He was like, no, not at all. He's, you know, he, he was like, you never the songs that you think are going to be great disappear, and the songs that you think, well, that was all right, are the ones <laughs> that are amazing. But um, but yeah, well, and and he had his little moment of producing. I think a very early demo for the Sex Pistols, but he. Right. I think he did a song called Motorbiking, didn't he, as well? Yeah, that was a big single for him. That was a big single on Stiff Records, wasn't it? And that, that record, uh, Hurt by Love, was just astoundingly great, I thought. Yeah, uh, he was such a lovely guy, you know, Chris. Yeah, I, I learned so many guitar things from him um, that I still cherish to this day. Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, he was he was a genius. Did you also get into people like Al Stewart, and then also people like Keith Christmas, and these kind of kind of quite quirky seventies folk singers? The soft rock thing is is that what you're talking about? I I know a little bit of Al Stewart. Um, yeah, he did Year of the Cat and Time Passages, I, and then and yeah, was, that, that, by that time we had rejected. By by 1977, we had rejected everything that came before, and I'm glad that I didn't trash all those albums because I I came back and and was glad I kept them afterwards. But yes, um, we basically only were interested in punk rock for the for uh, specifically British punk rock. When when the American punk rock thing uh, sort of shifted to hardcore, that that completely uh, did nothing for us. Yes. Um, we ended up playing with some of those bands, which was was weird. It was a it was a weird mismatch. Yeah, and did I mean that early that early part of the seventies up to seventy five? You were at college. I mean, at that point, there was the sort of the birth of kind of heavy rock. There was also that kind of singer songwriter James Taylor. You mentioned Carol yeah. King, Joni Mitchell. There was also the world of glam rock of people like you know T Rex and then David Bowie, obviously a bit of Lou Reed. Slade. 
are big Slade fans. So that was Slade. And then there was also in that mix as well, there's the world of prog rock. So we suddenly had the world that was, you know, the concept album, you know, that kind of with little classical motifs appearing with Brian sure. Wakeman and yeah, kind of... our, our bass player was totally into all of that, especially um, you know, anything anything that had a, a notable bass player like uh Chris Squire and um in Yes and um Queen and um I'm trying to think of who else. Um yeah, he was very much into and then there was this other kind of uh British thing going on that was a little more obscure, like family and boxer and um uh I don't know if you if you um Dr. Feelgood was was kind of in that era too when they when they first started out. Yeah. Uh, so we were big Dr. Feelgood fans as well. Um I guess it's kind of that kind of slightly driven kind of pub rock I kind of refer to it but Dr. Feelgood would have been Yes, we get we get lumped into the pub rock category fairly often. <laughs> and and I which is fine with me. In fact, we had a song called Pub Rockin' uh, <laughs> that Peter wrote. Yes. So your your London, you know, trip sounded absolutely incredible to have managed to be there at the coalface when it was still happening and not like, I don't know, the next year, yeah. you, you know, it would um, all be a bit sad. Peter and I had taken a trip to London a few years before that, and I think in 72, and we were huge Jeff Beck fans, and we hitchhiked from London to Birmingham to see Jeff Beck playing at the top rank suite when he had Bob Tench in his band and um ooh, who was that drummer? Um Cozy Powell. Cozy Powell, Dance with the Devil, Jesus. Yeah. So we were we were huge Jeff Beck fans, but but we despaired at ever being being able to have a band like that because he was so amazing. Yeah. So Rock came along, that was our big chance to uh to shine, as it were. Yes, absolutely. So after London in 77, this is when you formed the band for real in 78? Yeah, in 78 we started. We uh, we hijacked a rhythm section from a country western band. Um, they were both friends of ours, but they were making really good money in this country western band, and they were really loath to, to give it up for rock and roll, but we talked them into it. And I think they were they were okay with it. Yes, was that Steve and Tommy? Steve and Tom, yeah. Right. So then, then, then you became the four piece. So at this stage, yeah. were you was music your twenty four seven kind of number, or did you have a a side hustle as well to try and? Uh, supplement? Oh, we all had day jobs. Music was our escape. Um, if you think about the the whole of our career, you know how some guys get together and go bowling together or something like that our thing was to get together and play guitars and play music together so that was our twice a week escape from the drudgery of our day jobs yes absolutely because in the uk i mean kind of you know punk quickly gets a bit sort of cliched and sad as you can imagine and then yeah. you we had that sort of post-punk period with you know bands like you know gang of four magazine and, yeah. Um, yeah. Why? Well, we were magazine fans. Yeah, and Buzzcocks. Um, and did you? Was it? Was was it Jim Jim Geoch who was in the magazine band? Um, who went on to Susan the Banshees? Um, 
uh john i thought no john that's it yes john yeah we saw that version of magazine play in new haven uh opening for elvis costello once oh my god what a lineup um yeah yeah it was a (laughs) tiny little club it was before he was a big deal Yes, this is, yeah, I, obviously. So, yeah, so we had that kind of, there was some really interesting music. Then we had people like Joe Jackson came along as well. Yeah. And obviously Elvis. Oh, well, we were big uh, Stiff Records fans too, like Elvis, uh, you know, Reckless Eric and uh, Niccolo and Dave Edmonds, all that stuff. Yes, absolutely. That was that was quite something really, wasn't it? Sort of Dave Dave Robinson and his label. So then... As the eighties progressed, I mean, in London, in London, there was you know the punk scene had gone, but the punk scene in New York seemed much more artistic. From you know people who I've spoke to, and they had a a, a much more of a variety of sort of songs, and so you had that no waves sort of yes, album, no waves, which yeah, was James put together. Yeah, yeah, and then you know because I think Brian Eno had sort of relocated to new york for a little bit Uh of time so he had sort of been part of it and you had that label called z records uh, ze so there was a it was like though it was kind of punky or post-punk it wasn't like thrashy pub it was kind of kind of lots of kind of interesting rhythms lots of you know percussion guitar playing so the that sort of new york punk kind of you know, world that was, I suppose, around CBGBs and um, Max's New York City, Max's Kansas City. Yeah, <laughs> and, we played all those places, um, the Danceteria, the Peppermint Lounge, all those guys. Oh, my God, um, you were there. Yeah. Um, we. What was that other place? Um, the Mud Club? We never played at the Mud Club. I think we wanted to, but we weren't quite arty enough for that. Right. Um, and the Pyramid Club, I think. Um, but there was, uh, I can't, uh, yeah, there was a great club, um, and now it's completely escaping me, but um, it was a big deal for us because we got our picture in the New York Times when we played there. Um, uh, it'll come to me. Yes, do t- do tell us. It's always interesting. So at this stage, you were just doing covers more than writing your own material. Oh no! By that stage, by the time we were playing New York, we were doing most of our own stuff. Um, yes. we were throwing a few covers, but um, and and the thing is, y- you have to realize that all of that British punk stuff, nobody had ever heard it in the states, so they thought it was our stuff, um, and. We didn't try to dissuade them from that. Um, so we we would play all these obscure, or at least to, to our audience, obscure covers, and they would think it was our stuff. Um, but eventually we got our own thing going on and um, and really started enjoying that, I think, the, the whole songwriting process and um, the recording process. I really got into that. The rest of the band hated that shit. But <laughs> I, I really liked the recording process. Right. Um, you, but you, we were you, we were basically a live band, and it took us a long time to to make any records. Yeah, did you start to get a, a, any in you know interest in record labels? Did you have any bidding wall that started to appear? Well, <laughs> there there's a kind of funny story associated with that. Um, yeah, we we had this guy who really wanted to be our manager, and he was he was a very nice guy, and he helped us out a lot. But we wouldn't sign anything with him because we were punks. And we didn't we didn't believe in 
capitalism or any of that stuff. So um, he he worked really hard to get us uh, seen in New York by record labels. And there was this one time we played at CBGB's. We were opening, I think, for a band called the Sick Fucks or something like that. And we did we didn't go on to like one in the morning. And if you know how rock clubs work, you you show up at six to do a sound check, and then you wait for six hours to uh, to play to play for your thirty minute set or whatever. And um, I think we ended up getting a little tipsy. Um, and when we got on stage. Um, I immediately dropped my guitar and it went out of tune and we spent the entire set. You know, it was kind of like when the replacements did that, people thought it was charming. And when we did it, they thought we were assholes. So, <laughs> um, and they were right. You know, we probably should have tried to stay sober for a, for a big gig like that. Um, but it was just one of those things. Yes. Um, so yes, but, you'll manage yeah, so, so we never really got any, um, there were a couple of little nibbles from big labels. Like I think Epic was mildly interested, but, um, but that kind of blew it for us. And, and in a way it's great because we went back to new London and started and kept playing for 30 more years. Um, most of the bands that we knew that got signed to big labels broke up within the year because they, they couldn't, you know, you'd get your hundred thousand dollar advance and then you'd have to pay it back and either your project would get shelved or, uh, something really bad would happen, but but money changed <laughs> everything. Yeah. So so in a way, we were grateful that that we didn't get that kind of thing happening. No. And, and we ended up just being one of those do-it-yourself bands, and you know we never made any big money off of anything. But um, the connections that you make with other musicians are just so great. So. Um, in 2004, I guess, you know, our, our star rose and fell many times in the course of our career. You know, our kind of music was popular for a while and then it wasn't and then it was again. Um, but I got, in uh, I got in touch with this guy, Fifi, um, from, uh, from Tokyo. He and his brother had a band called Team Generate. I don't know if you know them, but mm. um, they, we started exchanging tapes. Like they were, uh, we were both into, uh, the Pirates, Do you know, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates and yes. Nick all that. So we were exchanging tapes with each other. And he said, you you guys should come and play in Tokyo. And I said, you're nuts. We, we can't afford that. And he said, we'll pay for it. And they did. And we, we went over there for 10 days and played about three or four gigs with them. And it was just like we got treated like total pop stars the whole time we were there. And they paid for everything. We actually even made money because there, there was this whole merchandise thing where everybody wants to have your T-shirt or your your beer koozie or whatever it is. Um, so it it would just it kind of revitalized the band for the latter part of our career to have that experience under our belt. That is so nice because there's a there's a few bands. Well, there's a label in the UK called was called sarah records and japan seemed to really pick up on that label so a few bands who would play to 100 200 people in the uk yeah. would go to japan and have what they really realized was this star treatment with people you know going oh god look at this massive venue who's going to be playing there and it's like you and it's like <laughs> yeah but you know it's like no wow. we I think you've made a mistake. We normally play in front of like a couple of hundred people at the max. It's like not, you know. Well, it's a... our experience wasn't quite that massive. We we were still playing in front of a couple of hundred people, 
but that's all that would fit in the clubs that we played. So it felt like a, like a lot of people. Yes. Uh, and they just treated us so well. I'll never forget that. And, uh, and I'm forever indebted to those guys. Well, absolutely. It was one of those things. It wasn't a, a, a corporate thing that happened. It was just two guys interested in music and, and we figured out how to do this thing. And uh, we'd go, we went and saw them a couple of times when they played in New York. And they're, of course, a much bigger deal than we ever were. But it was just a, a really cool thing to, to have happen. Oh, God, that is lovely. I mean, when we got to sort of 82, 83 in the UK, I mean, this is yeah. like this little moment where, you know, the post-punk bands had, you know, obviously were influential and very, you know, committed fans. But then, you know, we suddenly found ourselves with a world that was indie pop, you know, in the that next chapter. I mean, there's lots of different chapters in the 80s, but yeah. I was a massive fan of the Smiths. So what was it like oh, for yeah. you? What was your kind of period of 82 to the new out al the album, uh, the Red album coming out, which was like you recorded that, I suppose, 83 for it to come out in 84? Yeah, and we had put out a single before that, um, a little bit before that. And um You know, it was it was kind of its own little bubble. You know, it, it really um, there was this scene in in Boston, a scene in New York, and and then we were kind of in between the two. Um, and there was a scene in Providence, Rhode Island, too. Yes. Uh, so so did we, you, you know, did you come across did you come across this book, which is the one about all the bands who so went? Familiar. Yeah, yeah. Are you in it? I doubt it. I'd be surprised if we were. Right, because we've been in some books, but not not really many. <laughs> uh, we're 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 still pretty obscure, and probably <laughs> rightly so. Um, but you know, we 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 kind of had our moment where we were a popular college radio act, if you know what that is. Yes, uh, states college radio was still is sort of influential in a way, and back then, um. Our second album, which came out pretty soon after the first one, uh, ended up getting some attention, um, and it got us a lot of gigs. And we we had a uh, we had a booking agent for the first time ever, and so we went on these little tours around the South and the the Midwest and places like that. Um, yes. And it was fine, you know. We we really enjoyed ourselves, and and in New England we were very popular. Uh, but outside of that, we were completely unknown. So on these tours, every once in a while, we find a pocket of people who knew who we were, like in Columbia, Missouri, for example. Uh, but most places we played, we were we were playing to empty rooms um, and, you know, having the time of our lives because we'd never done anything like that before. Yes. So when you put out the Red Album. Yeah. Where was that recorded? It was recorded at a place called J. Hanna Studios in Bethel, Connecticut, I think. Right. And their claim to fame, at least for me, was that they had Felix Cavalieri's organ. You know, his his Hammond B3 organ was there. So we had to put some of that on our record. Yes. Uh, and I think it was just a big organ swipe on one song or something like that. But uh, we were big Young Rascals fans, so, so we were thrilled by that. God damn. Um, and how many, I mean, you'd set up your own label, Ravon Records, didn't you? Mm -hmm. In your punk punk ethos. Was that quite straightforward to do in America? 
Uh, at the time, yeah, there were lots of lots and lots of indie labels, and um, this guy, our 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 manager, uh, was a lawyer, so he knew about stuff. And he had actually been a drummer in a '60s band um, called the Fifth Estate. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they had a hit with um, oh. Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead from The Wizard of Oz. They did a, a rock version of that that was a big hit. Um, and so he wanted to kind of keep his his hand in the rock and roll game. So he became our manager. Um, and I, I, I think we should all be very grateful to him because he he helped us do things that we never would have done otherwise. Right. Um, and, and, you know, ob obscure as we are, we were successful beyond our wildest dreams so so there's something to be said about that you know yeah uh, just a question of scale really i know and and expectations and um yes managing managing the expectations is important so what was the name of your your um manager from the fifth estate uh his name was ken evans uh, or yeah. his name is ken evans i should say he's still uh, with us and he was he was very nice guy who he he helped us buy real amplifiers and um tried to make us look like a a real band but we resisted at every turn yes uh, so you know we, we were probably terrible business people but that's not what we were in it for so no and and um and but you know quite interestingly in that period of, of your sort of early 80s and this is a kind of a, a common thing that i've noticed with bands from that period is that the prolific output because mostly people do just kind of have that 12 months you know rehearsing practicing they get a single out you know we had a guy called john peel who's a dj who played lots of interesting new stuff oh, sure, yeah. uh, and then from there it was that kind of john peel session then the first album you know that was good the second album could be even better and then that tricky third album so you sort of put out you know the red album let's go and then cruise to nowhere really quickly at this stage yeah and cruise to nowhere was was our downfall in a way that was our our tricky third album uh where we probably didn't really have enough material to be putting out a third album at that point um right but you know we recorded what we had as best we could yes and i think that 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 was when when we we started becoming less popular and less well known, and we kind of just retreated to to New London, where we were from, and just played gigs around New England. Um, and it took us, I think, ten years to to make another record. But that was... during that time, we were just, you know, playing and kind of discovering. Um, you know, all of our heroes had kind of uh evaporated so any any role models that we had just weren't there anymore and we had to figure out for ourselves what we wanted to sound like yes i can and imagine so that um i think shinola was the next record um and it was a uh, it was too long but um it it kind of was us getting interested in the recording process Yes. With your and, uh, album, you know, just going back to Cruise to Nowhere, 
which you brought out, brought yeah. out in 85. That's the one that doesn't appear on Bandcamp. Was that for the reason that you fell, you're not that in love with it? Really? It's not on Bandcamp? No. Everything. Oh, that's interesting. I think um, when we decide, when we started digitizing the stuff, when we started making CDs out of the vinyl, um, none of us really had a very good experience recording uh, Cruise to Nowhere. And, and I think, you know, some of the songs we liked, but they made it onto the Redux compilation, which was our, our first CD. Um, and then whatever didn't make it on there just languished. And I, I guess I, I, every once in a while I'll hear from somebody who says, you know, you ought to do something with Cruise to Nowhere. And, and we go, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> and you, uh, at, our at friend that... Richard is actually responsible for a lot of the, actually for everything that happened after say 19... I'll say just randomly, 1986, our friend Richard started producing all these records that we made after we stopped being popular. And uh, he was a George Martin fanatic, um, among other things. But he was a, a terrific producer and remains so. Um, and I'm just, you know, incredibly grateful that that he was willing to work with us uh, all those years, you know, from 1986 all the way through 2012 um and he continues to to be the 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 light that that keeps the reducer's name anywhere in the universe i think yeah. because he manages the website and the Bandcamp page and all of that stuff which is yes absolutely no that's 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 a critical moment isn't it so when you had that kind of disappointment with the third album did the band mm -hmm. sort of just go into a little bit of hibernation and you just all went back to your other commitments and day jobs at this stage. Yeah, we had been we had been working full time on the band by then. We'd all quit our our jobs for a couple of years. Um, we all lived in abject poverty for those two years, and then realized that things weren't going to go as we planned, and so we went back to day jobs. Yeah, yeah. but we still you know we still rehearsed twice a week, and we still um, played gigs all over New England, um, and that kind of became our 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 MO was to to just keep doing what we were doing locally and, and not worry about the career stuff. Yes. And then what happens, you know, when you decide to do, is it, oh God, what was the name of that album? Shinola. Oh yeah. Yeah. Shinola. Um, yeah. yeah. There's an expression called, you don't know shit from Shinola. So we <laughs> called it Shinola. Um, and um yeah, that was, you know, we had all these songs and we decided, well, we might as well do something with them. And Richard was willing to do it. And we went to um, Trod Nossel Studios in, in Wallingford, Connecticut, which is, um, that's a whole story in itself. I won't get into that, but um, a really great studio, a studio that's been around, you know, since the early 60s, I think, maybe even earlier. Um, and lots of big names had recorded there, but but we we went in there and they had a great room and we we had a really good experience recording there. Um, and that's you know, I, yeah, that was that was Shinola, and it, it it took a long time to record. Uh, most of our records we'd record in a couple of weeks, but that one we we would go in for a few days over over several months. And um, I don't know, it, 
it's got its moments. Yes. I mean, did it, was it, did it, was it difficult to know what direction to take the band during the sort of that, that kind of mid nineties? Cause they've obviously did a, a lot had happened since your last kind of release and period, you know, there'd been the whole world of grunge and, the Seattle sound that in the UK we'd sort of got a lot of dance stuff that had come out. Then we had Britpop. It, there yeah. was also various other scenes that were happening as well. I just wondered how the band were looking at their kind of moment because there would have been also those. I suppose we'd had hair metal in the eighties, and then America had also got all those kind of pretty heavy post Seattle yeah. grunge sounds, which were pretty <laughs> awful. Really, I'm trying to think of a band that I liked then, and it's it's a little difficult to find one. Yeah, uh, I, think, I think we kind of um, got a little bit recursive there, and and kind of went back to the Kinks and the Who and and those kinds of bands that that were part of our DNA more or less. Yes, uh, and I'm trying to think. Yeah, there there were. I I think we were we were kind of left to our own. I, I think we had to turn inward a, a bit there too, because we weren't hearing anything that we liked out in the world. And so we just did our thing instead. Yes. Uh, such as it was, um, you know, there, there's, there's a, it, it, there are a few songs on that record that I wish hadn't made it. And it's my fault because I, I pushed to have them on there. Um, <laughs> but you know, live and learn. <laughs> yeah, I know because it it's got that influence of the, of sort of stiff records on it, hasn't it? Yes, it's got some of that too, for sure. It's got Ducks Deluxe. We love Ducks Deluxe, don't we? And and Doctor Feelgood vibe. So yeah, I could imagine that was something that you played a lot when that came out. Did you sort of find yourself with a the same sort of audience, or a slightly bigger or slightly smaller audience than than the previous release? Yeah, smaller for sure. Um, we we played smaller clubs. We'd still go to New York. We'd still go to Boston. Um, we could still get into clubs there, which isn't true for every every band from Connecticut, certainly. Um, and you know, we just had this little circuit that we would play. You know, probably three or four times a month. Um, and we did that for a long time. And and it it's ironic that in in New London though. Um, we, we had a few ups and downs, but mostly we, we stayed very popular there. Um, and we would play, um, you know, they'd have these big festivals and stuff that we would play at. So we'd play to like a thousand people, maybe 2000 people sometimes, um, in new London, but everywhere else we were kind of just a club band. Yes. Uh, and, you know, did- there were. After we did the trip to Japan, New Londoners just thought that was the the bee's knees, you know, and so we, they 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 had a the mayor declared Reducers Day or something like that, and we had to get there was a proclamation that was read at one of our shows. Um, yeah, it was all kind of embarrassing, really, but um, it it was nice to sort of have that revival. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, when the band then sort of took a few more years for the next album which is the one guitars bass and drums yeah does the the lineup of the band change at that stage nope it was still the four of us right Um, but um 
Yeah, our songwriting process was pretty, um, how shall I put it? Um, brutal. Like you could bring a song in and in five minutes, you'd know whether the song was going to go anywhere or not with the band. Right. And so um, there were three of us writing. Um, and yet we'd be lucky if we came up with five songs in, a, in six months or, or a year. So that's why it probably took so long to put an, another album together. Yes. Uh, just because so many rejects. When you when when you went to record your, you know, I think this is your last album you've done, isn't it? Studio album. Yes, guitars, bass, and drums. And then we had a this thing called Lost Tracks that happened after Steve died, uh, which was all sort of outtakes from other sessions and stuff. And we also did an album of covers um called Old Cons. Um which which kind of reflects what I was telling you about how nobody knew who the songs were by, so so they thought we had written them. Yes, uh, but we cover like you know Reckless Eric and uh, Doctor Feelgood songs and so forth. That's right. Yes, you've got the whole lot, haven't you? Breakout, <laughs> going back home, Mac the knife. Right. Yeah. Yes, Police Car, which is uh, Larry Wallace, isn't it? He does, he does an amazing right. version. Yeah, that was a staple of our, our repertoire early on. And I must admit, the live there's a live album. I think it's Live Stiffs. The live version of that song is stunning. I never liked the... I don't think they quite yeah, had the same I, I atmosphere. You but, you know, I'm a Police Car is just genius, actually. I love that song so much. <laughs> You know. Yeah, we took it from the live stiffs. That's that was our inspiration. Larry Wallace, God, what is he still alive? Good question. Good, I'm not I'm sure. Have to, I'll have to Google um, that. An, another big influence on us was this guy Roger C. Real. I don't know if you know him at all, but he's from Connecticut. No. And um, he had a single in England back in probably the mid '70s called "Stop and Go." That if you haven't heard, you should. Oh. Um, in fact, I can email you a, a, an MP3 sometime if you want. Oh my God! Yes, my but, God. Um, our our friend Richard, our producer. Um, there's a whole backstory with Roger, but um, he's still playing today in a band called the Manchurians. But uh, he had a big impact on us early on. We covered some of his. We covered one of his songs on that old Cons record too. Right. Uh, High Society, I think it was called. Blimey, you you do. So, God, as with all these, yeah, so Stop and Go was, what's his name, Rich, Roger C? Real, R-E-A-L-E. Right, I've got you. Oh, so then, yes, the worst thing in the world that happens, you, so what, Steve passes away. Say again? Did you say Steve then passes away sort of in the last 10 years? Yeah, Steve got cancer in 2012 and it happened very fast six months he found out and six months later he was dead Jesus. Uh, and that shook everybody up um so the reducers ceased to exist and then um peter and tom and i tried to put something together called the three pack um yes. And we kind of sucked and our hearts weren't in it so we we let that go and then we, we started a band with roger Steele briefly. Uh, but we never got out of the rehearsal stage. So um, so I went back to my folky band and Tom went back to his country western band and Peter went back to running a bar. 
or a tavern in New London. Right. And so that's where we are today as we and speak. this is and yeah it's because i noticed you've got a band camp page as well haven't you which has got your yeah yeah Rick, very kind about uh letting us be on that oh that's fantastic so yes keeping the band going then do you do you ever have any idea of possibility of doing any material do you feel like that's kind of it for the moment um doing new material or just you know getting the band back together in any shape or form uh not the reducers. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, we've talked about it, and it's just um, Steve was such an integral part of the thing that we just couldn't make it work otherwise, I don't think. Yes, this is true. So when did you start your next kind of musical project as a sort of more... Well, they of a... overlap. Um, there, was a, there was a point where I had all these songs that I'd written that the band didn't like. So I said, well, I'm going to go do these with somebody else then. So um, so I got my friend Mickey uh, and and we started this band Dog Bite and we've been going for like 20 years now. Yes, um, God. We've got a few sort of homemade records. And does um, that mean that you're just doing it on the Bandcamp front or do you release albums at the moment? Oh yeah, totally on Bandcamp. Uh, we, we have some some CDs we, we put out, but nobody buys CDs anymore. So yeah. Uh, we kind of stopped seeing the point. Yes, well, quite. And what's um? And then you mentioned the film. Someone came up and said, "Look." Oh yeah, let me see I, if I can. I need to. I need to make a film about the band. You went. That's a really good idea. Yeah. So I don't know if you can see it, but this is the 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 DVD. I'll send you a copy if you're interested. Oh, amazing! I would love to. But reduces. Um, it's got a lot of funny stories in it, and. Some good live footage. And this um, was and this came out 2006. That sounds about right. Um, yeah, 2006. So when your when Bill Dumas came yes. up and said, "Look, I want to do a film about this band," that probably didn't sell millions. Did you think mm, that's never going to happen? I was shocked when it did, frankly. <laughs> But you know, we we sat in front of the, his camera for him and said whether whatever bullshit came into our minds, and he put it out as a movie. Uh, <laughs> God, that's quite a nice little thing, though. It kind of wraps, you know, it gives the band that kind of structure, I guess, because because Steve was still alive when that came out, and um... yes, yeah, and he's got some great footage uh, that we all put on Facebook every time it's his birthday or something. Yes, I I saw your Facebook page. So then yeah, he's a, he's a very he was a very charming and and funny guy. And yeah. We all... Yes. So just on your on your solo stuff, then you've got you've got two albums out as um with this new new lineup or the this new new sort of musical direction. Did you say? Yeah, more or less two. Um, and and then we started just putting out singles because we figured out that when you put out an album, it gets about the same amount of attention as a single does. Right. And then disappears. And so all of those songs that you thought were so great um, disappear with them. So, um, yeah, we're, we've got another single coming out probably in a couple of months. Yes, I can. And then we'll, I... Maybe we'll compile them into an album. I don't know. God, that's good. So is it the case that you're still playing live? and, and sort Oh, of yeah. Go... Yeah, we this band plays out at least once a month 
and then I play in a duo with a fiddler and uh, we play farmers markets and stuff like that, um, which I love doing. Um, so I'm playing all the time and, and really enjoying it. Yes, absolutely. This is fantastic. I mean, if you could have whispered someone to like your 16 year old self starting out in the world of music, is there anything that you would have said, oh, yes, that would have been a really good idea? Or I would have gone in a slightly different direction or had a different focus? Great question. I, I have no idea. I, I don't really have any regrets. Um, I'm glad that we did the reducers. I think it was a it was a great thing to have done. It was, you know, being in a band is 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 one of the best things there is. It's like like playing music in front of people is one of the best things there is. And it's really, really hard work to keep a band together. Yes. Um, but we did, and we did it for like 35 years or something, uh, which yeah. is remarkable. Um, and then this band I'm in now, I'm having more fun than ever with these with, with these other guys. Um, and we're a six-piece, which is I've never experienced before. Um, so lots of lots of soloists. I would imagine. So with your the duo is Dog Bite. <clears throat> What's the six piece band called? Well, it's still called Dog Bite. Um, we will we'll go anywhere as a duo, a trio, a quartet, a quintet, or a sextet, whatever they're interested in. Yes. Um, and you know. Sometimes our fiddler can't make it, so we do it as a five-piece. Um, sometimes the tenor sax man can't make it, so we do it as a five-piece with the fiddler. And it has a slightly different feel. I, I like the sound when it's all six of us. Yeah. Um, and our drummer can play drums and keyboard at the same time, which blows my mind. But um, it's just um, kind of anything goes, which, which I enjoy. Yes, absolutely. This is good. So on Bandcamp, I know I keep going on about Bandcamp. Sorry about that. You've got oh, two. Fine. You've got two singles, haven't you? On there today. Oh, and... that's my. Oh God, really? You saw that? <laughs> um, yeah, those are just my. You know, I have a little home recording studio in my backyard, and um, I have the 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 gall to think that anyone might be interested in them, and clearly nobody is because nobody buys them. But it's fun to put them out. Yes, absolutely. It's got to be done. So where can one find material from Dogbite? Um, well, they're on the Bandcamp page that Richard has for the reducers. You can find a couple of records there. And I think the singles are there too, actually. Um, right. Yes, I've got all the... Yeah, so there are three of them, actually. There's one called Rough Mix. There's another one called um, Joyride. And then another one called um, Like a Rose. Right. I think. Oh, yes. Now I've got it. Jeezy greasy. Uh -huh. Dog bite. Yeah. Sorry. I was on your the reducers page. I said, I can't see. Yes. Yeah, so there you go. It's all here. Rough mix. Yeah. Like yeah. And then our friends Heap are also on that page, I think. Um, and they're guys who started off in New London and moved to New York. And so uh some of their recordings are on there too i think they're on our our label on the ravon label yeah god it's all it's all interesting stuff so yes it's it's all go and is it the case that you still have your kind of day job but you can do the music as a interesting well i of... did have a day job i'm i'm too old for a day job now i'm retired so i can do whatever i want 
That's even more uh, exciting, isn't what it? What I actually do for my day job is I, I teach young kids about climate change. Right. Because um, nobody else is doing it, so I figure I might as well. <laughs> so I go into schools and teach them six lessons about the climate crisis. And they, and they yes, well, you know, this and is so important. I've, I've got songs that I've written about climate change that I, that I play for them, and, and it helps them to learn some of the stuff, I guess. God, you, you, you sort of, are you channeling the spirit of Peter, Paul and Mary? Um, more Pete Seeger, I think, than Peter, Paul and Mary. But um, yeah, he was my first, uh, my first hero, for sure. Yeah. Back when I was six years old or something. Nice one. This is brilliant. Well, look, thank you ever so much, who for your time. This has been amazing. Well, and if you want, I can always send you the link and you can always use it elsewhere. And um but yeah, it's been great to hear the story and uh well, it's a pleasure. Yeah, yeah it's been uh, fantastic. And thank you of, for the interest. I know it's been brilliant. And um yes, I'd love to see the film if you ever get a chance because um uh, yeah, um I'll if if you send me a, a snail mail address, I'll I'll get it in the mail in the next day or two. Well, that would I'd be so grateful. <laughs> so, I pleasure. love these things. Yes, well, this is grand. But look, have a lovely evening, and I'm going to go to bed. But look, thanks a lot. Thank you. Take, Take care. care. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Hugh Birdsall from The Reducers, talking about his life in music and um, and much more, I'm sure. Anyway, this has been the C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And also, all these interviews have been archived. And you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.